coming to you live, but not really. It is all pump and no circumstance with Ryder Richards on LetUsThinkAboutIt.com, the amateur hour you should never tune into. Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards, and thank you for taking the time to think about things with me. My goal here in the podcast is to read and write to shed some light on the contradictions that surround us. Through knowing, perhaps the world will be a little less confusing and anxiety-producing, and this might allow you to encounter the world in a better way. I know it does for me. So, for the podcast, real quickly, like, how did we get here and where is this thing going? Well, over the last six or seven episodes, we've been looking at various ways that we're told to live a free life as autonomous individuals. Yet, we end up living in a society and culture that's rife with contradictions that fight back against this. So, we're really told how to live, but we're embodied in environments that are designed to influence our behavior so that the actions we take are not necessarily our own. That's right, these ideas are not originating with us, these ideas are incepted into us through our environment. We've also shown on the podcast that our reliance on logic is often faulty, and that the human body has its own perception and cognition. We've talked about attention pirates that are interested in us living constantly distracted, stuck in our own heads. And this is because our mental models up there are easily manipulated because we really don't have any concrete grounding in reality. So also, we previously looked a couple episodes ago a little bit at cars and how our relationship to the world is now mediated by dials, which really pervert our connection to reality into an abstraction. Now, instead of attentive negotiation, we're kind of isolated in our little bubbles floating around just colliding all the time. So, today... We're going to continue our little investigation. We're going to keep using Matthew Crawford's The World Beyond Your Head and his references to Natasha Dow Scholl's Addiction by Design. We're going to be looking into machine gambling and design that compels addiction. But equally, we're going to be looking at what's happening in our society where people would be more easily swayed into something like a machine gambling addiction, which has to involve a loss of control and stability in society and this this loss of control it creates a desire for self-induced autism to find some sort of control or comfort in a highly unpredictable world so while you're listening to this episode uh, just maybe keep it in mind that towards the end we're going to be discussing the libertarian ideology of your freedom to decide, and how the state is somehow now enmeshed with corporate capitalism to profit from the slow death of citizens. And this might all be because of a kind of liberal squeamish neutrality. The paradoxical milieu we will unpack is proclaiming everyone is free while you set up traps to enslave them for profit. It's claiming you care while turning away from the damage you're inflicting. So this is Kind of weird, but it's like we're carefully planting some freedom cheese under a box and it's, you know, propped up by a stick and then you starve somebody enough and you pull the stick out and go, ha ha, you did it to yourself. <laughs> oh, that's awful. Um, anyway, just hang on to that as we jump into how gambling goes from play to addiction to self-destruction. And finally, how ideological proclamations of autonomy and freedom grease the wills to make it all happen. Part 1. Gambling Gambling 
Yeah, in case you didn't know, it has a very sordid past. But of course, it seems like we have overcome that past just by renaming it gaming. <laughs> That's right, just drop a couple letters and all of a sudden it's fun. Yeah, so gambling used to be mafia-run gambling dens. It was super shady, but now it's just fun times on the strip. And of course, we have all the movies, right? We have the Urbane James Bond-style poker roulette where very well-dressed, sexy people are throwing around insane sums of money. Of course, it's not so often that you see the darker side of movies, movies like Uncut Gems. No, no, Hollywood typically portrays the luxury side where a crew of smart, sexy people enact some sort of genius heist or con. What you don't really end up seeing are the boring, monotonous, and frankly tragic scenes of nearly two-thirds of Vegas's residents who are addicted to gambling. Yeah, it isn't sexy to see how the sausage is made, because it actually looks a little bit more like this. You wake up in your box of an apartment late in the afternoon because you have a night shift. You drive to work in your little box on wheels and you go into a boxy casino that has a cartoonish facade. And after sitting in your boxy cubicle, you cash out your daily earnings so you can go to your own preferred box. And this is the casino where you're part of a loyalty membership program. And of course, 82% of Vegas residents are part of these. And then you spend the next 6 to 12 hours straight sitting in front of your little box that whirs, rings, and flashes until you're out of money. Of course, maybe you have a favorite slot machine. Maybe it's your little own private box with mildly garish themes. Or maybe it's really garish themes. It doesn't matter. But this box of yours used to be close to the ATM, so you didn't have to walk so far. Because, of course, you don't want to be disrupted when you really get into the zone while you're playing. Of course... Now there's an ATM built in, so nothing could slow you down from spending your money. However, your machine isn't near the bathroom, and that's kind of a problem. So you've learned that you should wear dark pants, because it's harder for others to see the wetness when you really get into the zone and you pee yourself. So this is not Ocean's Eleven or James Bond. This is not a classic game of blackjack or poker, in which there's arguably a modicum of skill, even if you're destined to lose. Machine gambling, like video poker and slot machines, it now accounts for 85% of all Las Vegas profits. And of course, what does it look like? It looks like kind of hunched zombies that are enthralled by chiming, flashing screens. Now, this metamorphosis of Vegas after being mafia-run, somewhere around 1980, it became legalized corporations, which conveniently provide protections for stakeholders so they're under less scrutiny. This gentrification through legal whitewashing gentrifies all of Vegas, with tourism increasing fourfold from 1980 to 2008. Yeah, so sure, tourism isn't always gambling, but Vegas is an environment designed to disrupt your normal inhibitions and your ability to self-regulate. Now, we've already talked in the last few episodes about how our environment alters the way we react and think. Our mind reacts to what's afforded to us, and of course, the choice architectures in Las Vegas all lead to losing track of time, confusion, normalizing imprudent behavior, and emptying out your pockets. <laughs> so how successful is it at emptying out your pockets? Well, I'm not sure, but gambling has increased to a $44 billion per year enterprise, which is more than movies, books, and music combined. That's crazy, and it's a stat worth thinking about because if gambling is now considered entertainment, it's outstripping all the other creative arts. And then we have to ask, what is gambling returning back to our society? 
Statistically, the Gambling Association says only 1 in 300 people are at risk of harm by gambling, which is pretty high. But other studies show that it's more like 3 in 100 people, and for men, it's 1 in 10 men. Yeah, so if you live in a little box surrounded by other boxes, well, look down your hallway or your street. Someone nearby is addicted to gambling. What we want to focus on today is machine gambling specifically, because there have been innovations and alterations, right? Because it's now 85% of the profits, and these alterations make it more addictive. And this aligns with all of our previous episodes on attention merchants, the attention economy, surveillance capitalism, and how autonomy and individuality are being eradicated by tech. Now, machine gambling is similar to how Facebook and YouTube are driven to increase your time on platform. But machine gambling is designed to increase your time on device. So they work really hard to remove all the inconveniences that might pull you away from your machine. Need an ATM? We built one in. Does your butt hurt? Hmm. We'll add more padding. Does pulling that lever bother your shoulder? Oh, we'll just tap this button. And guess what? Our newest upgrade includes a catheter. Yet the design of the machines looks similar to old school machines. You know, the ones driven by gears where you actually heard the machine parts working when you pulled the lever. This is funny because they do this now with machine gambling. For instance, they mimic this old design by keeping the same number of symbols as classic machines, even though on a digital platform, you could choose any number of symbols you want. But people end up having an inbuilt trust for the naturalistic laws of the mechanical that don't carry over to AI-driven algorithms. And yeah, and that big lever, once again, let's leave it, just for nostalgia. And where once you used to be able to play 300 games in an hour, we're now up to 1,200 an hour. And so, this is crazy, but you would think that that would just make you go broke quicker, right? But what happens is the speed of play actually makes gambling more engaging and more stimulating. This also allows for the key function here, which is that more cycles of play allow the machine to better train and addict the gambler. So there's a lot of little psychological hacks that they build into these machines. And while the number of symbols on the machine may be the same, it's trickier than that because now they divided up the white space between the symbols as virtual stops. So this means that that little cherry symbol, when it's going around, it might land just off screen or it might land just right above the center line and you're, oh, it's so close to a win, I nearly had it. Well, this near miss sensation is known as the frustration theory of persistence or cognitive regret. And of course, we've all experienced this sensation that's so close because this is how we learn to navigate the world. So for instance, if you were learning how to cook and uh, you know, perhaps you're learning how to do a craft like drawing or painting or woodworking, well, the way that we perceive the world or apprehend reality is to perceive patterns and then work to refine them. Now this takes a kind of oscillating back and forth. You sort of have to narrow it down where maybe the eggs are a little too runny the first time and maybe they're a little too cooked the next. But that near miss, it actually helps train you to become competent, even masterful. That near miss is proof that you can get better and you can master this. Our ability to apprehend reality is intimately bound up with our own agency. That's from Matthew Crawford. And what he's talking about is our ability to affect change in the world is tied to these feelings that this machine is evoking from us. As such, machine gambling generates what is called autotelic activities. Now, this is kind of a fancy word, but 
It's when you're trying to bring something valuable into view or into reality through your actions, through your activity. And your activity is a way to generate insight here. So this is not just thinking about the thing, but you have to actually do it to approach the insight. The problem is with autotelic activities is the target moves and it only reveals itself while it's being pursued. So what does this look like for machine gambling? Well, you have to play more to discover the pattern. In pursuit of this pattern, gamblers feel like they're actually learning an arcane skill or forming some sort of intuitive connection because you're right on the edge of discovering something. Oh, there it is again, right? This level of focus allows gamblers to get into the zone, into a flow state. Okay, so pause just a sec. A real quick recap. This box that you're sitting in front of, it is a computer. It's disguised as a gear-driven machine, but it has also added virtual stops that tug on your evolutionary reward circuits so that you feel like you're approaching insight. Okay, I'm back to it. This is the overall design of the machine to keep you engaged, is it sets up a reinforcement schedule, which is kind of like operative conditioning or Pavlovian training, and the algorithm gives you just enough reward and just enough near-miss sensations to keep you playing. Now what happens is this stimulation gradually diminishes the activity in the prefrontal cortex, right? This is from the speed of play and all these sensations. And then the player ceases to self-identify or self-regulate. Now this makes them extremely passive and pliable. So gamblers describe getting into the zone as losing a sense of themselves, as dissolving and becoming one with the machine where their actions become indistinguishable from the machine. Now, as an automatic slot machine gambler has said, I no longer feel my hand touching the machine. I feel connected, like it's an extension of me. Now, this is odd, because this is the way race car drivers and master craftsmen talk. And Natasha Dow Scholl, in her book, Addiction by Design, says the appeal of the games is that the player has a sense of control. And the effects can be reliably reproduced where the player loses themselves in the machine in a state of absorbed automaticity. They give themselves over to the logic of the machine and are rewarded by a feeling of efficacy. That is, you lose yourself and thereby you gain control. Part 2. Induced Autism. The larger question is, why would somebody want to lose themselves? And of course, this is a huge question. It's existential, philosophical, ah, but biologically. Being in flow state just feels great. Losing yourself in a contradictory fashion actually is a way to gain control by giving up control. Hmm. So in your search for agency, which is to know that your actions have an effect on the world, you're attempting to master an occult set of symbols that are rotating in front of you in a fun magic box. And of course, at first, this is all just kind of fun and tantalizing. And when you touch a button, something happens. And at least here, sunk into this interaction, you get something beyond distraction, something you deeply psychosocially crave. Now, a quote from a machine gambler. I don't care if it takes coins or pays coins. The contract is that when I put a new coin in and press those buttons, I'm allowed to continue. So it isn't really a gamble at all. In fact, it's one of the few places I'm certain about anything. If you can't rely on the machine, then you might as well be in the human world, where you have no predictability either. 
Now, for me, this is the key point. Dress it up however you like, but the world is precarious and unpredictable. We're told to be free, but of course, genuine agency is scarce. So afraid, alone, angry, and insecure, we're all looking for some stability, some semblance of control. Now, in our daily life, we must, of course, follow the generic script of our cubicle job. We drive the same route back and forth to our box apartment, and this routine sounds secure. But the box is a trap stripping us of agency. We can't change anything, so we never learn to fix anything. We eat box dinners, and we watch the flat box on the wall. And if something goes wrong or we want better food, what do we do? Well, we use our squash little boxes to call an immigrant population to fix our lives. So we're not secure in this little box. We're stuck in a confusing and impersonal world. The very possibility of seeing a direct effect of your actions in the world and knowing that these actions are genuinely your own may come to seem illusory. Crawford says that we attempt to exist living between this highly individualistic ideal where we're supposed to be the unencumbered free self who acts freely. Yet, in reality, we're frustrated by the insecurities and obscurities of our world, and we must retreat into the autistic ideal. The autistic state is easiest to understand if you consider early childhood development. So when a child is born, up until about three months of age, what they want is called perfect contingency. That is, where the child's actions and the external world align perfectly. Now, of course, this sounds great. It sounds like a lot of control, but it actually becomes really boring and we would never grow or evolve if we stayed in this state. So after about three months, children tend to want imperfect contingency. And that is challenges and novelty and mysteries. Another little facet of childhood development we should pay attention to is that a child likes to go explore. They like to play with mysteries or experience new challenges. And then when it's all too overwhelming, the kid scampers back to a parent or to a safe place from which they can process, regroup, and then of course they go out and play in the world again. So this is safety and security, then exploration and play in a continual cycle. Autistic children, on the other hand, they continue to crave perfect contingency, where the external world remains completely predictable and shows no vitality. Routine and sameness are paramount. So the autistic child actually prefers things like rocking and swinging. These are self-generated, self-soothing patterns that are using the body to create a near-perfect contingency response. Very similar to pushing a button repeatedly. Crawford brings up, in an unpredictable world, many people are craving control, and they tend to seek it through personal technologies, maybe a cell phone, and manufactured certainties, like games. And these are to manage the anxieties produced by a world busily capitalizing on experience and attention. In this world, in our boxes, we have only the illusion of agency, while beset by constant manipulation, bureaucratic confusion, and inhuman expectations. So, yeah, I mean, what that looks like is sure, you've got agency. Just, you know, try to get some healthcare or home loans, see how far that agency takes you. Or, you know, try to talk to a real person at AT&T if you want to be, you know, part of the bureaucratic nightmare. And while they've got you on hold, perhaps you should hop onto social media and, you know, just feel that sinking in the pit of your belly when you look at all these wonderful people living wonderful lives that you can't figure out how to get to. As Crawford says, the appeal of machine gambling seems to somehow be tied up in the human world lacking basic intelligibility. Thus, we're all becoming autistic. <laughs>
Part 3, The Death Drive. We've discussed before the deaths of despair on the show, uh, which are alcoholism, overdoses, and suicides. Now, a few years ago, this is one of the biggest killers of middle-aged white men without a college degree. And in our Tyranny of Merit episodes, Michael Sandel brings up that Angus Deaton and Anne Case, who wrote the book Deaths of Despair, say that it's because these people have lost their place in the world. Yet, out of any addiction group, the highest suicide rate is among those addicted to gambling. What's even more distressing is when you hear about gambling's rise, with sports betting tripling in the last two years. Now, all of this must stem from a cultural paradigm of insecurity, people who have lost their place in the world. And to manage the anxiety, we look to manufactured certainties, which earlier we were talking about were personal technologies like games. So if gambling is indeed, at first, seeking control or agency by learning through pattern recognition some sort of arcane skill, and then it's a gradual addiction through behavioral reinforcement that the machine is giving you, and this leads eventually to complete submission to the machine's algorithmic logic, well then, interestingly, you do gain relief and security in this new routine. Gambling is a sure thing, because there's no more decisions you need to make. You now know what you're going to do after work every day. And you know what you're going to do with your money. And you know what you're going to do with your time. That's right, you're going to gamble it all away. As Matthew Crawford says, the will is relieved of burden. This is called gambling to extinction. This is where the player works towards loss, attempting to hit zero. Natasha Dowshol discusses gamblers actually being annoyed at winning because they know that they're addicted. And that just means they're going to have to sit there gambling for even longer, getting less sleep. Because hitting zero, yeah, that's the only way you can leave. So this is a type of sadism, converting the search for agency and security into a kind of tragic masochism. And Crawford brings up that in a society predicated on freedom, the pressure of constantly making choices to reinforce and to claim your individuality might just be too much to bear. The passivity of handing over all these choices and submitting completely, it actually grants the gambler freedom from the tyranny of freedom. At this point, deeply addicted and destroying yourself, there's really only one thing left that you can control as a gambler, the conditions of your death. Freud, later in his life, after he acknowledged that not everything is about sex, He talked about the destructive drive, which he called the death instinct or the death drive. And I know it sounds like kind of a grindhouse B or C movie or maybe a rejected Mad Max title, but the death drive actually makes sense of behavior that at first seems crazy. So when you're cornered and driven beyond your limits, death offers a state of rest, stillness, and peace. Psychologically, when we feel we're being controlled, We have a few options. We can run, we can rebel, or we can submit. But one option is to destroy the object that's controlling us. Yet for addicts, well, you can't really run from yourself. Anywhere you go, you're going to encounter that same problem. And destroying the thing you crave is kind of like harming yourself. And once addicted, as Freud would say, you have moved into a compulsion beyond the pleasure principle. It now primarily gives pain. So you're under its control and it causes you pain, yet you cannot lash out and destroy all gambling. 
Your destructive impulse to lash out, it's inflamed by anxieties and stress, and it has only one direction left to turn, and that's yourself. So, with one final middle finger, you can reclaim control by controlling your exit. And that's the death drive. Intermission. Okay, yeah, that was dark. So I'm going to distract you for a moment because I've been trying to think up new taglines for the podcast. And I was thinking, you know, something short like live wiser, right? Uh, Which is, you know, of course, kind of like Budweiser. But uh, of course, instead of lowering inhibitions, it lowers ignorance. (laughs) Or maybe it's live wiser. It's like Budweiser, but without the brain damage. (laughs) I don't know about that one. But uh, anyway, I have like four or five of these, and they just get worse. I have things like, live wiser with let us think about it. Stomping out ignorance on the nature trail of life. <laughs> or, live wiser. What's that smell? Or, oh, that's wisdom. Or maybe, that's knowledge bombs. <laughs> uh, okay, so that was the intermission. <laughs> And now back to our regularly scheduled program and a look at the political system that set us up. Part 4. The Libertarian Good Life People are free to do as they wish. They should be able to make their own decisions. Well, that sounds good, and this is a slogan of the Libertarians. And of course, Las Vegas is a kind of libertarian experiment. It's a liberal playground where your right to risk, to play, and to lose all supports free market profits. This whole experiment also aligns with another mantra. Government interference is bad for the economy. And I'm not sure, well, actually, I disagree with that completely. But what is undeniable is that government interference is definitely bad for the bottom line of some very particular people. And thus we enter into this really confusing game of distraction through language, where libertarians cite your freedom as a self-regulated individual, and then they let loose a $44 billion industry to scientifically engineer an addictive program that leverages every animal instinct you have against you. (laughs) Yeah, let's see who wins that battle, right? Of course, when players become addictive, we've got this other problem with our ballooning field of psychiatric medicine which tends to designate them as pathological gamblers. This sort of implies that they have an internal self-regulation defect by labeling them. And as Crawford says, since that's just a personal problem, society has no urgent reason to actually criticize the external forces which might have caused it. This misdirection continues and it turns into a game of cost-benefit analysis, where all of a sudden, Well, if these people can't control themselves, I mean, it is after all an internal defect, then they will lose all their money, no matter what we do, whatever safety nets are in place or if we help them. You know, and if all that money is going to go somewhere, because I mean, after all, they are pathological losers, the state might as well get a portion of that money. And thus the state positions itself to profit from the corpses it's creating rather than halt the slaughter. So to clarify here, This kind of libertarian economic analysis, it's really only seeing the upside of the wealth transfer without really considering or even acknowledging the new conditions unleashed where addictive design outstrips a human's ability to self-regulate. So 
you know, it can be tempting to think this way and we can all be a bit guilty of it, of being really selfish because what's happened is we've been tied into a freedom pretzel of trying to get our freedom cheese. And we don't want to be paternalistically judgmental whatever we do, right? Because it is, after all, the other person's right to make their own choices and perhaps they would flourish out there gambling or whatever they're doing. I mean, who am I to say? I would hate to come off as some sort of righteous or prudish person imposing my values. I mean, geez, the only people that do that are totalitarian nationalists or religious nutjobs. I mean, so, you know what I should do is just maintain my very careful neutrality, just culture my neutrality, and should turn all that questioning of outside world onto myself and consider myself the problem. Now Crawford says that all of our autonomy talk has actually led to its opposite. Our threat now is our liberal commitment to neutrality. Because when we remain neutral, we remain neutrally squeamish about confronting the practices that degrade people. And what happens is there's a void left there by not making a decision, and capital just nimbly slips on in there because they just don't care. (laughs) And so then they take over this language and they take over this space. And with capital using the language of autonomy, our critical faculties get clouded and they're neutralized through misdirection. So here's the issue. How do we recover from this, right? How do we re-engage our critical faculties? Well, Crawford says we first need to be able to articulate a picture of the good life. We should know where we're going. And as you might remember from Richard Sinnott's The Culture of the New Capitalism, the younger generations that he interviewed were not able to articulate what a good life would look like. Hmm. Now, if you don't know what the good life is, how can you be critical of how you have fallen off the path, or really, what even the path may be? Instead, we're left with a narrow consideration of what is good. And the unfortunate part is this value system here tends to be economic in nature. Unfortunately, Crawford says for a libertarian to recommend a substantive good life, it would require a substantive ideal, not this policy of neutrality by looking away. So by using words like freedom and difference, it may sound radically liberal, but if I understand Crawford's argument right, These terms offer an abstracted, idealistic buffer zone, a neutralizing space from which no real commitment to others is ever needed. So your proclamation allows you, as a libertarian free market capitalist, to align yourself with caring for people's rights. You're sovereign and free. While it equally allows you to take advantage of them when they enslave themselves. Oh, someone's gonna profit, it might as well be me. So this is odd because Proclaiming the good life is somehow through freedom of choice. Yeah, well, that's hard to sustain when you look at Nevada as an example. I mean, sure, the state's prosperous, but are its addicted citizens free? I mean, for that matter, is anyone that's addicted and in poverty truly free? And how about if anyone is dependent on a state or employment? Are they actually free? So you see how this freedom thing falls apart pretty quickly, but for some reason, it retains its potency as a rallying cry. Never take our freedom! So this libertarian stance of freedom to decide, well, it sounds laudable, but it is actually neutralizing by remaining disengaged. It covers for a lack of public spiritedness, that is true social care, and critical engagement, that is, it goes conceptual to dismiss obvious contradictions. Crawford says, 
Libertarians are confused because, unlike King James, Verizon doesn't make straightforward assertions of sovereignty. Instead, it wraps you up in the embrace of rational-looking bureaucratic irrationality. And while in this embrace, your call is important to us, one catches a distinct odor of bad faith. And being suspect that the irrationality one is battling is not due to a system error, but it's actually part of the business plan. So, yeah, while the free market, that is Verizon, it allows you to freely enter into a contract with them, if you don't pay, well, it's not like you're going to be attacked or anything like that. Instead, you get a hit on your credit report. And as Crawford reminds us, Capital now operates as if it's quasi-governmental. It sets up its own reward punishment patterns, which is very similar to the state or King James. They just do it in more Baroque ways without the edicts, right? They don't say anything about it, they just do it. They increasingly invent bureaucratic arcane mazes, complete with punitive behavioral training. Does this sound like something we've been talking about? Maybe this is just machine gambling and behavioral manipulation on a global scale. The confusion here, says Crawford, stems from the paradox of being free as a sovereign individual in a society dedicated to leveraging your animalistic instincts against you. What we're lacking is a realistic, positive, and full of count of what it is to be a human. And not just economic concerns or other narrowly reductive metrics. What we need is an account of what it is to be an actor in the world, in touch with other people. Instead, we're left with the autistic pseudo-autonomy of manufactured experiences which pale in comparison. All right, thank you very much for your time. I really hope you enjoyed the show. And of course, if you did, I'd love it if you would rate the show, give us a review, maybe hop on to lettusthinkaboutit.com and subscribe to get our monthly newsletter. And of course, on the website, if you're looking for information on each one of these episodes, I have written versions of the show. Also, we're on YouTube, so if you want to see me with a mustache, hop on there. Now, the show takes time and energy and passion to keep afloat. Thank you so much for being a listener. And also, many thanks to my amazing subscribers donating five bucks a month to keep me on track and help me focus on extracting wisdom into these little episodes. So what that averages out to about 250 per episode to catch all these amazing knowledge bombs you're getting, right? So you get to go to a party and be a completely interesting person who's probably also, if you're quoting this stuff, a complete downer. <laughs> so sorry about that. But anyway, if you could do me a favor, share the episode with somebody, maybe not a libertarian, they probably won't like it. But anyway, okay, next episode, we might get into the escape from freedom. And that's because it aligns so well with the psychology of submission, the trap of freedom, and it kind of ridicules true autonomy is only possible in total isolation, which of course would drive anyone mad. <laughs> okay, and lest we forget, ooh, if you want daily wads of fuzzy wisdom delivered straight to your inbox, check out bellybuttonlint.blog. That's right, bellybuttonlint.blog. All right, many thanks and stay safe.